You're listening to The Blueprint, brought to you by Executive Platforms. In every episode, we will discuss the topics and trends, the issues and ideas, the challenges and opportunities facing senior business leaders today. This series is one more way we want to engage with our network of industry executives. Thanks for joining us. Hello again, everyone. You're listening to another episode of Executive Platform's Blueprint Podcast Series. My name is Jeff Mix. I'm Head of Content and Research. My guest today is Ryan Chrisman. He's the co-founder and Chief Technical Officer of Emoja Biopharma. Uh, before starting Emoja in 2019, Ryan served as the Executive Director for the Gates Biomanufacturing Facility, where he was responsible for building out and staffing the protein and cell therapy CDMO. He was instrumental in growing the facility's CGMP capability and delivering many first-in-human therapeutic products to patients. While at Juno Therapeutics, Ryan led the JCAR-17 CMC program and was the head of late-stage process development. He has also held scientific leadership positions at Zymo Genetics and CMC Biologics. Ryan holds a PhD in chemical engineering from the University of Colorado Boulder and a bachelor's degree in chemical engineering from Washington State University. We are going to be having a conversation about building manufacturing in-house at an early stage uh, with some specific examples and references to Emoja's new Colorado Laboratory and Innovative Manufacturing Building, which they call The Climb. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Before we get too far into the specifics, I would like to give our listeners a little context. Uh, I imagine many of the senior business leaders who make up our audience but might be outside biopharmaceutical manufacturing specifically, would be surprised at just how much of a manufacturing capacity crunch your industry is facing right now. Could you tell us, how did we get here? And can you give us an overview of why so many companies right now are working through the buy versus build versus blend approach to solving their capacity challenges? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. Uh, one that I think about often. Um, and, and maybe I'd start with saying, I've, I've actually come to the conclusion that uh, we're actually right where we should be as an industry with regard to the the scientific progress that we've made and now the current manufacturing capacity bottlenecks that that we've run into. Um, I don't know if it'd be helpful, but um, you know I, I'm happy to give maybe a, an example or two of kind of like how I think we've landed here. Um, specifically, I think right now we are in a drug development renaissance. The the progress that we've made in terms of understanding diseases like cancer, why they come about, how they spread, how they, um, you know, and then more importantly, maybe how we can actually use our uh, immune systems to actually fight those those diseases. And so um, it's at a stage now where I never thought it would be possible to have the understanding that we do, um, say, 20 years ago when I was first getting into the industry. And so our as our understanding of these systems deepen, then it really comes down to um, taking that understanding and then building uh, our capabilities to make drugs to actually solve those those problems. And so we're in this, what, what we might call a manufacturing capacity issue, and I can use air quotes there, because of the incredible advancements and the pace of advancements that we've made in the science side. And so we're really playing catch up on the manufacturing uh, side of the house. Um, Maybe for for our non biopharma folks, um, a, a good example could be um, how we're treating cancer and 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 you know how it's been done over the last call it decade, um, and then how we've gotten to where we are today. Specifically, I, I think about cancer in the oncology space a lot because that's what uh, Emoja is focused on. That's what Juno is focused on, um, and and so if you look at the standard of care in cancer, 
it's really still it's cut it you burn it or you go after it with chemical warfare meaning chemotherapy um and, and if you think specifically looking at, at chemotherapy chemotherapy was really it's uh, i'll use the term invented again um, but it came about because soldiers were coming back from world war ii and they were the the doctors were discovering that the ones that were exposed to uh nitrogen mustard was they had they had really low um uh, uh white blood cell count really low immune cells and so the the this finding led researchers to investigate whether or not you could use these mustard agents uh to actually halt the growth of rapidly dividing cells and then more importantly cancer cells which are more rapidly dividing than our typical immune cells and so they started using chemotherapy as you know mustard gas as chemotherapy to say is there a window where i can give the patient enough uh mustard gas that we stop the cancer growth but we don't kill them and so this really narrow window and then over the course of the last few decades chemotherapy has advanced and it's gotten better but it's still chemical warfare on cancer and if you stop and think about that for a second we the standard of care today is still something that came about from trench warfare in world war ii and we've got to be able to do better than that and scientists have been asking that question we have to be able to do better than that why can't we and so over the last i don't know probably 30 40 years um there's been incredible advancements of of trying to answer that question on the science front and doing benchtop research figuring out ways to modify immune cells that can go and fight cancer and if we then kind of look at the last decade that benchtop science that the success there transformed into clinical success and so now it started working in the clinic on a few patients and then if you maybe look at the last uh, couple of of years that those clinical advancements have turned into now commercial products that have global needs and so if if you've got the ability to actually solve the problem scientifically then usually what follows is the supply chain challenges the capacity needs that one needs on the manufacturing side and so we're in this this manufacturing challenge because of the advancements that we've made in the science and the progress and so the example on the cancer side, instead of chemotherapy, what's happening is they're taking patient cells out of the body, they're bringing them to a manufacturing facility, they're genetically modifying those cells, and then they're putting them back into the body to fight the cancer, and it's working really well. But you can imagine that process is very uh, time-consuming, very expensive, and very uh, big bottlenecks. But the the from a CDMO perspective, you don't want to build out the capacity to help manufacture those until you have proof of concept, until there's a, a need in the industry from a commercial perspective uh, to actually uh, deliver the, the capacity needs needed for, for the industry and to treat a lot of patients. And so now that the proof of concept is there, now that the commercial need is there, you're starting to see the manufacturing capacity being built out. And so I see this as a short-term challenge, at least in a few of the examples, um, where it's just gonna take some time to build out the capabilities. But that's one example. And if you look at the cell and gene therapy space, I don't know what the number is, hundreds of cell and gene therapy research and, and, and uh, clinical stage products that are out there. So take that one example of an industry needing to expand rapidly on the manufacturing side. Now multiply that by a few hundred. Um, you, start to, you start to see that job security in the manufacturing space is, uh, is going to be pretty solid over the next few decades. I understand 
Emoja has opted to build up its own manufacturing capabilities in-house. Um, what were some of the factors that went into that decision? Yeah, so, you know, just building off the experiences that we've had at, at Juno, we were, so Juno was where we were taking the cells out of the patient's body, bringing them to a manufacturing facility, manufacturing and bringing them back. And we started off using a CDMO. Um, and there were a lot of challenges. You had to train the CDMO how to do it. Um, you were you were basically building a new infrastructure, uh, working with um, you know novel reagents, and so everything was new. And um, it was kind of holding the hand of a CDMO uh, to be able to do that. Um, and it, it worked. There were a lot of challenges. There were some good things. And so if you look at where Emoja is now, we're now taking it to yet another way of treating cancer instead of removing the patient's cells and actually taking it to a manufacturing facility, we're providing the drug product that is directly injected into the patient that does all the, um, the, the genetic modifications to the T cells to be able to fight the cancer. And so we've eliminated that whole need to do the big manufacturing piece. But what that means is we now have a novel therapeutic that needs to be manufactured. And so as we thought about that, when you're doing early drug development on a novel product, it's important that you have a team that has the flexibility and that can adapt quickly uh, to when, you know, you basically want to be able to pivot where the data takes you. And by having full control of both our development capabilities and our manufacturing capabilities, we have actually been able to very quickly adjust our processes and, and even adjust what our products need to look like um, based on where the data is taking us. And then secondly, by keeping it all in-house, we're building out that deep knowledge within the organization of what our product looks like, what impacts our process has on those products, and allowing us to, to maintain that, that, that deep level of knowledge and that, that uh, speed to the clinic to ultimately have that biggest impact on patients. And so as we you know, kind of broke it down into um, you know, three things that really came to mind when we made the decision to internalize, the, the first one was just the lack of know-how in the industry of, of how to make this drug product. Nobody's ever made it. Um, and so we wanted to actually keep that internal and build that knowledge internal to, to be able to control that. I think the second one was that flexibility and adaptability. CDMOs tend to not build business models to have flexibility and adaptability. There's an inefficiency there. And so, you know, that's that's really by maintaining and having control of that internally, it's 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 really critical to be able to have that uh, flexibility and adaptability to where the, the the data takes you, because if you don't, you then, which brings to the third thing, you have huge impacts on timeline. And so by having everything internal, we have the know-how, we have the flexibility that allows us to maintain the timelines to get to the clinic and have a big impact on patients. Let's talk about your facility, the CLIMB in particular. Uh, and yeah. I'd also be interested to hear how your background has informed some of the choices that were made uh, while you were thinking about how to meet the needs of today and also create opportunities for growth in the future. Yeah. Um, so, you, so you said that the, the CLIMB stands for the Colorado Laboratory and Innovative Manufacturing Building. Um, we actually had an employee on day two uh, come up with that acronym, and I, it, was, it was so good. There wasn't, you'd never think about it anymore. It just kind of stuck. Um, so, so the idea of building out internal manufacturing so early is a question I get often. Um, you know, a lot of times CDMOs and, and others will build a, a, a new manufacturing facility or new capacity when they're at 85% capacity. Um, and what we decided to do and, and, uh, you know, after a lot of thought was, um, we wanted to take what I call a frugal approach to expected success. 
And so lessons learned, what you were asking about, if I look at, at my lessons learned over my last two or three manufacturing build startups, company startups and builds, um, we've always built just enough to be able to get to the next proof of concept. And at some point, then you 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 run into, oh my gosh, we need to build bigger. We need to move everything over to something, to another place. And that results in huge inefficiencies. And so your time to actually have, you know, a commercial product with big impact on patients takes a big hit. Um, and it's just a really inefficient process. And so when we built the climb, when we designed the climb and built it, um, we, we essentially did it in a way where we built as lean as possible to be able to provide the material for us to get to proof of concept. But we designed it in a way that we can expand or bolt on as needed very quickly and efficiently to be able to meet the needs of that commercial product, of that next product that we might need, or, or just the, the, the bigger product pipeline that might come once you get successful clinical proof of concept. So we didn't build this huge, fully operational facility um, to meet the top capacity of the brick and mortar. We built it to be able to run just enough to be able to get that proof of concept, and then upon successful proof of concept, expand as needed so that we don't run out of space. Now, you have a background in CDMOs, and we've talked a little bit about CDMOs already, and I think they are an important part of this ongoing trend happening in the industry right now. Emoja built the climb the way they did because it was the right direction for them. What would make partnering with a CDMO the right choice for some of the other organizations working in this space? Yeah, and I, I think it's it's important to start with saying CDMOs are absolutely critical to the success of our industry. Um, they are one of the foundational members that are that are required for us to be successful and to have a big impact on patients. Where where I found um, CDMOs are most effective, and I, I use the baking cake analogy is um, you know if you've got your recipe and you've already made the cake and you need to go make a thousand cakes. CDMOs will take that recipe and they'll figure out how to make you a thousand cakes. But if you're at the stage where you're not even sure what type of cake you're making, what ingredients you need, um, you know what what the oven temperature needs to be, then then you're then you're in a situation where CDMOs aren't built to be that that flexible and that adaptable. And so you you end up having a situation where um, timelines get longer, it gets more expensive the earlier you are. And from a CDMO perspective. The, the, the biggest value for them is being able to just go and take a thousand cakes and make 10,000 cakes and have a commercial product. That's where their profitability comes in. And it's a business when it comes down to it. So to spend a lot of time on figuring out what raw materials you want to use to make, not sure what cake you want to make, um, that's, a, that's a rough business model to say, okay, well, of the uh, 100 that we pick, five of them are actually going to be successful or one of them is going to be successful and, and stick around all the way through commercial. So, so it's actually more beneficial for them to be kind of post figuring out how to make that first cake. Um, and so if you're already there, CDMOs are fantastic. Um, and, and they're definitely ones that, you know, that as more stable industries, monoclonal antibody industries, even I would argue the autologous cell therapy space um, are, are industries that CDMOs have figured out and they can, they're very uh, effective at helping startup companies. Um, but I think if you are going to go with a CDMO in those early stages, which it's expensive to build your own manufacturing. So I think a lot of folks are in that boat. Um, the, first, the first advice that I would have would be set realistic timelines. There's one thing to put it on paper and say, well, if everything works perfect, this is how long it will take. So I'm going to go to my investors or I'm going to go to my board and I'm going to tell them it's going to take this long. It usually will take when you're in these early stages um, and you're working with CDMOs, I would add 
uh, a year to what you think the best case scenario is, give you that flexibility and to make sure that you've got the finances to get you through that extra year of, of runway. Um, and I think the 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 second one that I would think about is as your um, the more novel your product is and the more novel your process is, I would spend the extra money on building out some internal development capabilities, both analytical and process, to be able to be the the team that can go and sit with the CDMO and kind of hold their hand through the training process, through the development process. Um, you know, as much as my product is my top priority in my life, CDMOs by by definition need to have multiple top priorities, multiple products. And so mine might be their top product for a month or six months, but it, but uh, you know they have to have multiple products in their pipeline to be sustainable. And that's just the model. Um, so being able to make sure that you've got your own team internal that can continue looking and continue making sure that that's a top priority for your company and that the CDMOs have, um, you know, are looking at it is important. Um, and, and I think the third one that I would recommend going into it is making sure that you've got internal quality focus with the CDMOs. Um, again, I don't, it's not the CDMOs are bad on quality. It's just um, you want to make sure that your product, your process is having the right level of quality oversight that you want internally for your company and then work with the CDMOs. Um, as you're building it. So again, I appreciate that uh, that that not a lot of folks will be in the position to be able to build out their own manufacturing um, at this stage, especially with the financial situation uh, that the industry's in. Um, so trying to learn some, get some lessons learned is, is helpful. Returning to Emoja, I'd love to talk about your experience getting the talent you needed in a really competitive space. What mm -hmm. has Emoja done to attract, develop, and retain the people it needs to succeed? Man, if I think about about the people we've attracted, is probably I could probably break it down into two or three things. Um, I think the first one for me is, um, and and this is probably personal, so others might have different driving forces, but it's always been about trying to solve a really big challenge. And so for Emoja, I think we've attracted a lot of brilliant scientists, brilliant engineers, because we are solving a huge industry problem. There is a in in the autologous cell therapy space, there it's critical. Uh, that we solved that manufacturing bottleneck that's out there. And so that's what Emoja is doing. And we've had really good success in, in, in retracting or attracting the, uh, the, the top talent. Um, and I think the, what I've done over the last 20 years of my biotech uh, experience is just building those relationships. And I, I know, like, uh, remember working with people that, you know, I, I always thought, man, if I ever start a company, I want, I'm going to be calling them. And maybe it's because of their brilliant science, um, but mostly it's because of just how they worked with teams, how they worked together. And he said, they're going to be great people to build a foundation around. And so when the time came to actually start up Emoja and hire those first employees, if you look at who those are, they're folks that I worked with, you know, uh, two decades ago or, or, you know, two jobs ago um, and calling them up and, and hoping that they felt the same way about me. Um, and being able to recruit them. So I think, you know, have a big idea. Um, kind of don't be don't be a jerk in your jobs. Um, it's a small world out there. And, and so, uh, you know, make sure that you, you, you set good relationships up because you're going to be calling those folks, whether it's to start a company or whether it's to ask a, a, a question. And then I think the, the third one about retaining them, to me, it's you hire brilliant people, um, give them a really challenging assignment um, have it stretch their skill set, let them feel like they're really developing and learning, um, and then support the heck out of them. 
And for me, like one example is, um, you know, in the startup environment, folks are like, well, I can go work at big pharma. I probably make more money. It's a little bit more stable, but I want the experience of what is it to do a startup? Well, some differences in a startup versus big pharma is, you know, I'm talking directly to investors on a regular basis. I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, our, our, our investors are coming on site. We're having, um, uh, you know, big BD partnerships. The, the, all of those conversations are happening um, that you can have folks get that opportunity uh, that they maybe wouldn't get at a big pharma company. They can wear a lot of different hats. They can kind of see how businesses are, are built and grown. And just giving them those opportunities is important. I'm so glad that was sort of the last part of your answer because it goes into my next question. Um, you know, going beyond just talent, I believe people at the C-suite level are going to be at an incredible premium for the foreseeable future. Uh, we touched on it earlier. The number is not static enough to pin down with certainty, but there's something like 700 advanced therapy medical product companies in the United States today, maybe another 700 in the rest of the world combined. All of them are going to need at least a chief technical officer like yourself, who has yeah. both the technical operations skill set to develop and commercialize the product, but also the leadership and business skills needed to navigate the organization forward beyond just getting the science right. And I don't know that there's a right answer to this challenge yet, but as someone who is part of the trend yourself, I wonder if you could share some of your thoughts on how the industry is going to develop that C-suite level it will need during this time of rapid growth. The the number one thing that we did at Amoja starting up was... Um, initiating a mentorship program. And to me, you know, mentors are critical to nurturing the next generation of, of leaders. Um, and, and then, you know, identifying those folks that have both the, the capabilities to be the next C-suite members, but also the desire to be. Um, and then, give, like I said, giving them those opportunities to, to be part of the board of directors preparation. Um, to, to be part of the fundraising storytelling of how, how should we put the story together. So to take it a, you know beyond just the science and the science is great, but then how do you make sure that you can tell a story so that um, you know, board members and investors can understand the story uh, at a level that they need to, to be confident in what you're doing. Um, those are experiences that um, I know when I started getting them, um, I realized, oh, this is actually a path that I want to take. And I've had others that got the experience and said, you know what, I just love the science and I want to go be a great scientific leader. And that's good to know. Um, and, and I feel like the earlier you can learn that in your career, the, um, you know, the, the more focus you can have on building the, the proper skill sets. Um, and I think the other one is, is give them those stretch rules, like I said, and then just allow them to keep learning from, from what's going well and learn from their mistakes. Um, give them some space to make some mistakes. Um, and kind of what works for them. The process that works for me to be an executive is, is going to be different than some other folks in terms of how they're going to present themselves and be an executive. But there's some, some main rules that you can follow. And so I think just mentoring them and then giving them the space to learn who they are as an executive is important. Um, yeah, and I think just, you know, part of that is bringing out the best in, in that individual and, and um, nurturing their, their growth as an executive and what it means to be an executive. And then um, if they decide that's the route they want to take and just mentor and support them. Going beyond talent and leadership, then, why don't we talk about the future of advanced therapy medical products? I feel like the future of medicine is being decided right now, and that's really exciting. And as someone who is part of that process, what do you think the industry is already doing well? And of the things that needed to be decided upon in the near future, what are your thoughts on what's most important or, or maybe what's most interesting? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> so 
maybe I, I'll start by just saying drug drug development's really hard. And we we are at this stage that where um, there is a lot of brilliant scientific hypotheses that need to be tested into the clinic. And that's really where um, where we're going to learn what the truth is, is what works in the clinic and, and what doesn't. Um, we're at, what I think we're doing well uh, with regard to that question is that the industry has been very transparent. We realize the opportunity that we have in front of us to have impact on patients. And that's why we all got into this field is to have that big impact. And so, you know, whether it be new small conferences that are happening to be transparent and open on communication of what's working well on science, what's working well on, on manufacturing and leadership, um, all, all the way through just, again, kind of building, um, you know, small groups that, that are touching base on, on the novel therapies that we're working on to have lessons learned. The transparency has been um, really incredible and one that uh, just makes you excited about, about what is ahead in the next decade. I was curious, uh, what is the most important thing that needs to be figured out or, or most interesting thing that comes next that the industry needs to decide on as it moves forward? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good question. So, so Jeff, you, you had mentioned there's, you know, 700 cell and gene therapies uh, kind of ramping up in the U.S. and another potential 700 in, in, um, uh, across the rest of the world. And if you start thinking about that, um, the amount of funding needed to make sure that all of those move forward at the rate and the expectations that we've had over that have built up over the last decade, um, it's an unsustainable model. And so I think what we need to have discussions about as an industry is how do we build a sustainable model with with the right expectations to be able to fund the great science that that we have and make sure again that we're having the biggest impact on patients. And I think that is absolutely an important issue to uh, figure out before the industry moves forward. Um, Ryan, I know we've had sort of a wide-ranging conversation here, and I would hate for people who have been listening to uh, maybe miss a couple of the key takeaways just because we were sort of moving from one topic to the other. If you wanted to highlight one or two bullet points that really people should be taking away from this conversation, what would those be? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. I, I think for one, and I said it at the beginning, um, I, I'm personally very excited about where the industry is. We we are in a in a drug development renaissance, and uh, I think the future is very exciting for um, being able to solve a lot of the really challenging problems uh, in in the medical field. And so I think number one, folks should be really really excited. There's going to be challenges. Um, there's going to be hiccups, but um, it's probably the most promise that I have seen uh, in in the field uh, in a long long time. And so um, I have a ton of excitement. And I think secondly, and, and kind of per the, the initial discussion of, of the podcast around building internal manufacturing, I think there's there's no right answer. And there's I'm not even sure there's an equation out there that helps uh, helps get to to a suggestion. But, um, you know, I think for Emoja, we made the decision uh, to build internally for the reasons that we discussed. Um, we're doing it in a bit of a novel way of building a, a very um kind of lean organization to deliver on what we need to today but still having the vision um, and capability to expand as needed um i, th I think it'll be an exciting uh, uh next few years to see kind of how the field pans out and kind of what decisions uh, worked and which ones maybe needed improvement ryan this has been a, a fantastic discussion thank you so much for joining me today thank you jeff i really appreciate it you've been listening to another episode of executive platforms blueprint podcast series i've been jeff mix let's do it again soon